in the cavalry if they send me off to war. I want a good steed under me like my forefathers before. I want a good mount when the bugle sounds and I hear the cannons roar. I want to be in the cavalry if they send me off to war. Well, I want a horse and a volunteer horse that's riding forth at dawn. Please send for me some gallons. Welcome to the Old Grad Podcast. We've got a couple firsts for tonight. Uh, we have our first active duty major general on the line, our first division commander, and our first classmate to actually sing their own walk-up song. Because, Johnny, that was you actually singing that song, wasn't it? That was, yes, with the help of the first cavalry division band. That's incredible. Is that like a, is that is that a tradition? Does the does the division commander have to sing that song, or do you just decide you're going to do it? No, I just decided I would do it. Uh, you know, I. You know, I mentioned to you earlier that, uh, you know, my last chief of staff said, uh, when I took command, he said, you know, sir, there's two types of general officers. There's ones that have bands, and there's ones that wish they had bands. And and so I decided, well, I'm going to take full advantage of that. And uh, I leveraged them uh, really right now a lot. As you probably have seen in the media, we are really hurting on recruiting right now across uh, across the Army, across all the services, really, uh, to the point of uh, it almost becoming a crisis. And uh, and you, it's amazing what the band has been able to do. You know, the old traditional, uh, you know, go put big displays with tanks and helicopters at big events like NASCAR races or football games. Those are those are good, but they really don't bring in uh, folks the way uh, for the amount of money and, and effort that goes into something like that. It doesn't really inspire people to to connect with our army. They appreciate it and they think it's neat, but I don't think it makes anybody go down and say, oh, I think I'll join the army today. Where we have seen some huge impacts uh, is with the band specifically. Uh, the band has been going out across Texas. Uh, well, I guess I should back up and say, you, you know, TRADOC is responsible for recruiting. Recruiting command falls under uh, training and doctrine command. Well, the chief staff of the Army said, hey, this isn't a training and doctrine command issue now. This is an Army issue, and we're all in. Force comm, everybody. Division commanders, I need you to get out there and, and recruit. And so the band, what the band does is it goes into high schools and it's the one thing, it's one of many things, but one thing that we have in common with every high school in America, and that is they have bands. And so our soldiers go into high schools that recruiters have not been able to get into in years, maybe decades, maybe ever. And then teachers allow the band to come in and they teach the band class, they, they interact with the students uh, because they have something in common. And all of a sudden the teacher's like, oh, wait a minute. There, you, you don't have to just be an infantryman and, and you don't just have to be an, an armor officer or, or a tanker in the army. There's other things to do in the army. And all of a sudden our soldiers start to sell the army to these influencers that have in the past resisted, resisted the the army coming into their school and so the band gets the foot in the door and the recruiters come right behind it and say let me show you all the things that you can do in the united states army uh, all these different occupational specialties that you could do 
and it's uh the i would say the band and then the other one is uh, a lot of our uh, kind of our high high tech things you know we got little handheld drones for example and so you you've got cavalry scouts that go to a science class and with a little tiny helicopter that fits in your hand that has a has a, a camera on it will you mini uav and all of a sudden the science teacher thinks well that's pretty cool and then the students think it, it it's interesting and so i'm very very proud of the band i mean they are out all over texas uh and and really showing the american people what the U.S. Army is all about, and it's not just about infantry; it's about a lot more than that, and and it's about some base values, uh, and and I'm just just really proud of the fact that they are they are making connections with influencers that we have not connected, and you won't connect with at a football game with a tank out in front, right? Well, we're proud of you for singing it, Johnny. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> yeah, you sound pretty good. I mean, do you have like like are, are you musically inclined? Have you previously? That's funny to ask. So I, I grew up. My my mom told me I was not. Yeah, you know, she's like, you can't sing. You can't carry a tune. So I've always never sang, except at church. And then my kids would be like, Dad, just stop, just stop, <laughs> just stop. Uh, and so I don't. I don't. Um, I did pick up the bagpipes at West Point, uh, first year, and uh, uh, and I and. I'm not, I, I'm not musically inclined, uh, and, but I did want to sing that song with the band. And so I went down and I was, I, I was pretty bashful. I, you know, and, and one of, we have a staff sergeant in the band, Staff Sergeant Moon. He actually just PCS to, uh, to Korea. Uh, and he was on The Voice. He made it to the finals of The Voice. Wow. Oh, wow. Uh, and then enlisted, enlisted uh, to sing in the United States Army. And uh, he's, he's very positive, big, big coach. And, you know, I, I didn't want to sing in front of everyone. I definitely didn't want to do it on a microphone. He's like, sir, I'll work you through this. And over a lunch period one day, you know, I just went from the headquarters, walked over to the band. And, and uh, by the end, he had me confident enough to sing out loud in front of people. And by the end, and the goal was by Christmas, and we started in September, and by Christmas that I would sing that song uh, at the uh, at the Christmas at the first cavalry division band Christmas celebration where it was kind of as a surprise I just came out on the stage and sang it and you know of course it's the CG you know everyone's like, oh it's the CG I could have been off tune and I think everyone would have loved it so. <laughs> well Vince Duquet is on the line Johnny and he said that he remembers you playing as a platoon leader he said yeah. you've been playing ever since platoon leaders yeah yes I've gotten worse since I've gotten worse <laughs> you know, I, I was always impressed by, I know one of your mentors, which we'll talk about today, is uh, General Dempsey. He's a, he's a legit singer. I mean, that guy can actually sing. Oh, he can sing really well, yes. And, uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, Vince and I were in the, in the same battalion together with, with General Dempsey. And, uh, and, and so Vince will appreciate this. Uh, and uh, so uh, we... We were in Germany, so it's stairwell housing, except for the battalion commander who had his own house across from the stairwells. And so General Dempsey was our battalion commander. And uh, and he had uh, three kids. He and his wife, Deanie, had three kids. And uh, Chris was the oldest. I think he was in eighth grade. Megan was in seventh. And Katie was a little bit younger. Uh, 
just to show you how old we are. So Chris, Chris was a cadet when I went back, uh, when Holly and I were there uh, at West Point around uh, 2000, 2001, Chris, Chris and Megan were cadets. And so we sponsored them. And that seems like just yesterday. And uh, this summer, as the division commander, I handed the brigade colors of 1st Brigade, 1st Cavalry Division to Chris Dempsey, that little eighth grader uh, who used to play basketball in our, in our backyard. Uh, and it just shows you the kind of the circle of life mm -hmm. uh, and how long we've been doing this. Yep. Yeah. That's a pretty cool story. That is amazing. That is amazing. Uh, and and, and probably when you were looking in his eyes, Johnny, I, I'm sure, because I see it too, when I've done the oath of office with the lieutenants, probably when you're looking in his eyes and handing him that guide on, you're looking at an eighth grader's eyes yeah. and just saying, wow, how, how can this be? I know it's, it is, uh, it is amazing. And it, and it seems, like I said, it seems like just yesterday that we were all in Freiburg, Germany. Mm -hmm. and, uh, it's a, doesn't seem like that much time has passed. Yep. Um, so give me the here and now, Johnny. Like you are division commander. Uh, like, what is that like? Like, give me your day to day. I, by the way, we were trying to connect on a pre call this weekend, and even on Saturday and on Sunday, you have like four or five things going on during the day. Like, you know, things that you have you have to be accountable for. So, like, what's your day to day like? What's your what's the battle? battle rhythm look like on a week-to-week -week basis for the division commander of, uh, of, of, of your division? Uh, yeah, so well, PT every day, just like the old days, uh, 6.30 to, to 7.30. Uh, and then, uh, unfortunately, I am swamped with, uh, with meetings. Uh, but I have two incredible, two incredible uh, DCGs, uh, both West Pointers. I'm trying to think what class, I think one's 94. Four and one's 95, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and uh, so I made a New Year's resolution that uh, I'm going to leverage those guys and I'm making them go to the meetings I don't want to go to anymore. And I've been getting out and, uh, and seeing training. And it's been just so refreshing to get out there and see the, the soldiers out in the field. I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm an armor officer by trade and I've been going out to gunnery ranges and uh, Bradley's and, and uh, tank ranges and it's just been awesome. Uh, but uh, I, I tell you, division command is, yeah, I've had some awesome jobs in the Army. I mean, as a matter of fact, I haven't had a bad job. I've had the privilege to command some really historic and uh, incredible organizations. But division command is, is, is just a completely new experience. And that is because of the talent in a division headquarters. Uh, all the division staff officers are uh, what we call uh, CSL select, command central, uh, command select list. So they are essentially like a battalion commander is is uh, selected on a board. So is the G1 as an adjutant general officer. So is the G2 as the intelligence officer. And so the talent that I, that surrounds me, I, I literally. I probably wouldn't even have to go to work. Uh, the, the, the division would run itself because of the talent of the division, which is, is uh, there's talent across the army, but there's just something different about a division. The, the level of talent 
that that you have at a, at the division level really makes it a just a special place to work because you just see these guys that I mean I think I know what's going on in the division every day and then I hear things I'm like we're doing that I mean I'm just amazed at how many I mean it's the division's twenty three thousand strong and so of of course obviously I don't know what everybody's doing every day and so I'm just fascinated amazed and just overwhelmed when I hear these stories of of individual soldiers, lieutenants, captains doing day-to-day uh, -to -day business and get and, and how much gets done by 23,000 people in one day is uh, it's pretty it's fabulous to be a part of. That's incredible. So how much how much influence do you have on your staff? You don't get you don't get to pick your people that are for those staff positions. It's it's a sign like this is your G1, this is your yeah. yeah, so it's all signed. Uh, and I'm, I, of course, I'm biased, and I'm sure every division commander says this, but no, I really have the best. And part of part of the reason I, I'm probably the theme of our podcast here is how lucky of an individual I am. I'm very lucky that I got the first cavalry division, which is the the Army's. It was known as the Penetration Division. It's now called the, an Armored Division Reinforced. And I can go into a little bit of detail without boring everybody on that. But really, it's, it's about going back to uh, a formation that can fight large-scale combat operations after 20 years of, of counterinsurgency and low-intensity conflict, where we, we decentralize a lot of our capabilities down to the brigade level, because that was the fight of a counterinsurgency is, you know, the neighborhood fight. Well, now we have near peers. We know what Russia is doing in Europe. We know that uh, what China is doing in the Pacific. And so we're having to reorganize the army back to, back to what, what many of our classmates will remember when they were still in the army. And that is uh, formations that were division centric, where cores would fight, uh, and 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 so part of that is uh, standing up these divisions um, to be prepared to fight large scale combat operations. So so in prep in prep for this call, yeah, I actually watched I watched a YouTube video about yeah. what you're talking about, like you know a penetration division, what it means and. You know, you, you opined in this in this in this setting that you felt that that the artillery needs to be back at the division level. You can't have it the VCT teams. You're talking about that, and then um, I guess so, there a question came up about a warfighter exercise on Third Corps where you were the corps commander uh, in the exercise, and you said, "Well, you know, I screwed this thing up. We got we we got annihilated like in this like in like do." You, because I, I was impressed by your um, candor and your kind of self-reflection about how you how 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 you learn from this experience and, and it was actually like um, I think a great leadership example saying hey look you know like here are mistakes that I made as the standing you know as the standing core core commander and here's why things are have got to be different going forward right yeah so yeah I remember that uh distinctly uh so the the corps commander was actually still in iraq and i was the deputy corps commander and i, I was back at at uh, fort hood so i i served as the corps commander as the uh the higher command for a 
for the Fourth Infantry Division that was going through those their warfighter, and uh, Force ID took it in the it took it in the shorts, and it was because the Corps had not set the conditions for them, because uh, we haven't we haven't had a Corps fight in twenty years, you know, since really uh, the invasion of Iraq in two thousand and three, and so you've got a whole generation of officers, including myself. Uh, my whole field grade time was doing counterinsurgency, and then all of a sudden you you get thrown back into, hey, we're going to fight large scale combat operations, and you don't have sets and reps in that. Uh, and so we're learning the hard way uh, in in having to to really go back to some of the basics that, if you go all the way back to um, air land battle, uh, you know we have a new doctrine now that's called uh, multi domain operations. It's really air land battle, adding space and cyberspace to it. Mm -hmm. uh, and in talking about uh, massing effects at, at different echelons at the strategic, operational, and tactical level, things you didn't have to do in a counterinsurgency. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, I, 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 I failed 4ID that, that day. Uh, they, got, uh, they got beat up pretty bad because we had not set the conditions for them. To, to execute their attack. Uh, and, uh, and I will tell you though, that was just a couple of years ago at our army as we've done multiple war fighters since then as an army and we are learning very quickly. We're learning a lot watching the Russians in Ukraine as well. I mean, there's a mm -hmm. lot of yeah. lessons to learn from, from what's, what they're doing well and what they're not doing well over there. And, uh, and so we're incorporating all those lessons learned just like what, what makes our army so great is our ability to reflect, to mm -hmm. be transparent, and and be willing to uh, say, hey, we're not perfect. We got things we got to learn, and and then focus on not on all the great things we do. We've all been to a CTC, right? I mean, no matter who's on what, what, at some point they went to some combat training center and did an AR, and you didn't really focus on what you did well. You focused on what you could do better. And I think we've seen that and we've made leaps and bounds in the Army over the last uh, probably three to four years on getting ourselves recalibrated to fight uh, large-scale combat operations again. So the new airline battle doctrine is MDO. That's what that's what that's the acronym that you, you hear bantered about, MDO. Yep, MDO. But, but it's kind of like going back to the it's about continuously learning, I suppose. And there there are things that we had done in the past that now are reapplicable and things that we're we have to constantly be evolving and in kind of in preparation I suppose for doing this podcast I also checked out some more interviews that you did and you're talking about um, just the the incredible value that the NCO Corps has in our army relative to the Russians right and so like basically you know the the you could basically see when Russians come under fire. There's no leadership that there's no there's no non-commissioned officers that are directing the fight. They're just running in a single file, you know, off off from the um, the fight. Right. Right. Yeah. And really, their company grade officers serve as the, what we would consider the non-commissioned officer, which means they have a gap somewhere, whether it's at the NCO level or whether it's at the next level or the next level. Somewhere they have a gap that, mm -hmm. or at least uh, one that we don't have. Right. I mean, right. We, have, we have an extra echelon in there that, to 
achieve some, a competitive advantage over them because, and I think it's our non-commissioned officers. Uh, you know, it's, I mean, they're the envy of all the armies and across even our NATO allies. I mean, they, everybody wants to have that NCO Corps like the US Army, uh, but it, you just can't build it overnight. It was a professionalization that, that really started in the 70s. Uh, and uh, and it has continued and, and I mean, I'm, I mean, we got NCOs with masters, PhDs, uh, and, but they never lose sight of their, of their primary purpose, which is the individual soldier which is what I think is so great about them. No matter how, um, what, what they bring to the table intellectually, they, the ones that have chosen not to, let's say, cross over to the dark side and become an officer uh, that have decided to stay, uh, you know, they, they stay focused on the individual soldier. And then we leverage that intellect in, in a manner that no other army could possibly even fathom, uh, if you think about it. I mean, I think my my Sergeant Major's driver, he's a specialist, and he's got uh, a master's degree, obviously a bachelor's degree, master's degree, and he's working on his PhD. But wow. he is 100% just, just a, I mean, just a really smart soldier, you know, mm -hmm. like physically fit. I mean, everything, I mean, he's the whole package. So, so yeah. okay, good, Ali. I was just going to say, it's to me, it was always interesting with the with the NCOs is the ones who who are like that driver, and sometimes you'd approach them and say you don't want to be an officer, but you know they would, you know, the old token phrase, well, no, I want to work for a living, but it was oftentimes that they would say, it's because of what NCOs do. I want to do that. I don't want to do. I see what you do, and I don't want to do that. Right. And I that's could, what do, I it. I could do it, but I just don't want to do it. I'd rather yes. apply my they talent. Could, they could. They just didn't way. want to. Yeah. Yeah. They preferred not to. Right. So on this recruiting um, crisis that you talk about, there's another piece of this is the retention crisis, right? Basically keeping those E4s and E5s in the Army, make them want to stay. And I was talking to my, my young nephew today um, earlier, and he's got a goal. He's like, you know, I got... I've got like eight guys coming up for a reenlistment, you know, and I want to get, I want five of those eight to reenlist. Like that, that was, that's his, his mark. He's like, I got to get five of the eight. And right now it's only one of the eight that have indicated that they want to, but he's like, that's his goal is to get that five of the eight. So um, it really is. Um, I think uh, one of the challenges of our time is with the hot job market and um, uh, just being able to keep people coming into the army. So yeah. I think, uh, and, and I don't know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm spitballing here, but I mean, we've really seen it post COVID. Mm -hmm. And, and so COVID, which you, it's what it appears to me from the outside looking in is so much of the job market has gone to, you can work from home mm -hmm. and, and, like you can't work from, you can't telework in the army. You know, you yeah. so, uh, it's it, like soldiers are like, wait, why, why would I join uh, a profession or, or enlist? 
to a job that I, I can't work at home when I can get a job where I, I work at home and set my own schedule. Uh, so I think we're, we're somewhat competing against that yep. paradigm that uh, so many folks that just, they, they, they think there's a easy, quote, easier way. Um, I was listening to Brett Peckis, uh, he did uh, your, um, your podcast with him and I decided it was just did such a great job of explaining to a young person about like who who just looks at uh, either whether it's going to West Point or joining the army at face value like why it's five years commitment I uh it seems uh overwhelming and he just broke it down in such a perfect manner that you, you couldn't help but sell West Point or enlisting in the army by the way he laid it out. And I just think mm -hmm. that's what we have to do with these young, with these young uh, potential recruits or potential future officers is, uh, you know, it's not, it's a bigger picture and it's not as, uh, you, you got to see beyond like right in front of your face. And I thought he did a really good job of, of laying that out. Johnny, we've done, um, We've done our part, just recently did our part. Obviously, we've got our kids going to West Point, but we have um, our nanny son, who he's been with us since he was one, and now he's lived with us ever since before COVID. Um, so just this week, actually, on Wednesday, he went in, and Mark went with him, and he signed up. He's going to be a 19 Delta nice. heading to Fort Carson. He's, I wonder why a 19 Delta. That's why I forwarded him your, your song. And I was like, look, Alex, this is why we were encouraging you to, to go to be a Cab Scout. So he's all fired up now and he wanted initially, and this was what I thought was interesting. The recruiter, when he first went in said, oh, here, you can sign up for three and a half years. And I sent him back in and I said, Alex, I said, three and a half years is nothing. And I said, go sign up for the four because you won't even get to your unit. So sure enough, he went back in and then lo and behold, he ended up getting like a $5,000 more bonus for signing up for four. So he came home and he was just like, thank you so much. But anyway, he ships out in August, so we're pretty That's pumped awesome. for him. That's and awesome. he's going to Fort Carson, which is where Keegan's going. So yes. he could be in Keegan's unit, so it's going to be pretty cool. That's awesome. Yep. So, John, what uh, as division commander, what has been your biggest surprise or, like, learning that you've had? Like, an unexpected kind of um, epiphany or um, realization having having been in this uh, in this role? Uh, I, I think this, what surprised me the most. Um, so, you know, right now we are uh, we're a rotational army. You know, the army that we all joined was forward deployed. And so you, you had uh, U.S. Army Europe, you had U.S. Army Pacific, and then you had Forces Command which was in the States. And if you were in forces command, you didn't deploy. I mean, deploying was going to the National Training Center. And all you did is hone your, your war fighting skills so that if war broke out, a la Desert Storm, Operation Iraqi Freedom 2003, you break glass and you bring forces command units forward to wherever theater, and they are so highly trained, so highly lethal, so disciplined, so cohesive. 
that it, we saw the results both in 1991 and in 2003. We've gone to this, you know, we, we, we came out of Europe and we had this huge peace dividend, right? And like, oh, we're never gonna have a war in Europe again. <laughs> so we brought our troops back from Europe uh, somewhat in the Pacific too. The Pacific's a little bit different paradigm and I'm not a Pacific guy, I'm a Europe, Middle East guy. So, so I'll focus mainly on Europe. Uh, and, and now all of a sudden we have these near peers in both the Pacific and in Europe and when uh, we're not forward deployed. You know, we don't have a deterrent forward like we used to. And so we're having to pull the force comm units from Fort Riley or Carson, Fort Hood, Fort Stewart, Fort Bragg, and send them on rotations to Europe. And uh, that that's having, a, it's a grind. It's a grind on families. Uh, it's a grind on, on uh, units and it breaks down a lot of our systems. Like the one thing that you got used to if let's say you were assigned to Fort Riley out, like if you graduated from West Point in 1991 and you went to Fort Riley, you you fell in on a unit that hadn't deployed since Desert Storm, and before that hadn't deployed since Vietnam, and there were systems in place and uh, garrison systems, and you knew you were going to train to go to the NTC and you were going to come back. And you were just going to continue to get better and then go back to NTC a year or two later. And, and now, under the, the current rotational environment, uh, it's hard to keep systems in place in garrison because you go for a year. A brigade leaves for nine months or a year. And it comes back and then people leave. And, and so that has second, third order effects inside of an organization, whether it has to do with command supply, discipline, or maintenance management, uh, training management, all the things that were kind of standard business that we all grew up in the, in the 90s with because we didn't deploy. If you did deploy, you deployed to Europe for three years and they had their system, right? So, I mean, it was the same, it was different armies. We had basically had like three different armies. We had a Europe army, a, a CONUS army and a, and they were all stable. And right now there's no stability. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, that is, that was my biggest surprise is uh, how, how many systems get broken by uh, this constant rotation to either Europe or, or to Korea that we find that we, we don't have good maintenance processes or we don't have good supply processes or we don't know training management we're not doing training management well well it's because we we keep deploying units for nine to 12 months and it, it breaks up their their battle rhythms so i think that was my biggest surprise was the challenge of of trying to to, to bring back systems into a unit that uh, or an organization that it ha hasn't been um had the stability at home station to, to create and then maintain those organizational systems. And I can tell you, Johnny, from Lexi is over in Europe right now and she's stationed there, but she sees her friends who are coming over from 
first calf, 101st, who are, are the ones now first ideas over there now. And it's very interesting. And I, what I get worried about is it seems like all of those brigades that come over now all fall under a different set of rules. And so when you have these young soldiers and young lieutenants, it's very difficult to, to explain to them, okay, well, you can only do this, but these people can do this and this and this, and they can see a lot of Europe, but you can't at all. Right. And it's it's a hard morale thing from what I can see, at least from the lieutenants that I know over there doing it. Um, yeah, it's, it's just a weird time. Yeah. I think it'll be hard to deal with. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, I think that's, that's the, that was the first thing that kind of shocked me. I guess that one didn't shock me. I knew it was coming, but it's been more difficult to overcome. And then, of course, uh, you all know that I was here at Fort Hood during the um, the Vanessa Guillen um, uh, drama that played out in 2020 into 2021 uh, before I took command of the division. And, and I think that was a byproduct of what I'm talking about, which is this constant rotation and this constant pressure on the units that were, ro were rotating over to Europe under uh, what we called sustainable readiness model, which if you were at Fort Hood, and you were in the 1st Cavalry Division or if you were in the 3rd Cavalry Regiment, you were basically deployed for a year, came back for a year, deployed for a year, came back. And when I say come back, you came back to get ready to deploy again. So you're you were you're going right back to the field, you're going right back to the NTC, and then you're going right back to Europe. And, uh, and that went on for about five years here at Fort Hood to, I'd say, 2015 to, to 2020, when the mushroom cloud happened here at Fort Hood. And you could actually argue that it really started in 2003, when, when this division and, that, and this regiment started deploying to support uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom and Enduring Freedom, but definitely since 2015. And what, what took place here at Fort Hood and I would argue it's across the army, but you know I'll stay in my sandbox. Um, and that is, uh, there was a complete breakdown of trust between junior enlisted soldiers and leaders, uh, and it it came to a head with the Vanessa Guillen uh, murder. But that was really a catalyst to to let some festering issues really pour out. Uh, and, and, you know, as, and, and for the audience who don't know what I'm referring to, Vanessa Guillen was a, a specialist in the 3rd Cavalry Regiment who was murdered by another soldier in an arms room. She was a, she was a um, small arms repair trooper, and she went down to an arms room to fix a 50 cal uh, during COVID, and, uh, and so there was the chain of command and how we kept accountability people, not traditional. Uh, and so, but she went down to this arms room and, uh, and if you guys remember arms rooms, you go in, you gotta lock it. Da, da. And so the armor locked them, the two of them in there she, and he shut the door. We don't know exactly why, but he murdered her in the, in the arms room. 
and, uh, and would later dispose of her body. And what came out of that was um, uh, well, a couple things got convoluted in, in the media uh, because another issue with Specialist Guillen is she was being sexually harassed inside of her platoon, completely unrelated to the murder, not relevant. <laughs> uh, they got kind of combined in the media, uh, and, and they were people that had been pushing for changes in our UCMJ when it comes to dealing with sexual harassment and sexual assault. And so uh, this became kind of a lightning rod issue here at Fort Hood. Uh, but really, when you peeled it back, uh, you know, we got a lot of attention here at Fort Hood, lots of uh, you know, whether it was Congress, uh, independent reviews from uh, Secretary of the Army, uh, internal 15-6 investigation. So lots of, lots of uh, self-reflection. Uh, well, I, I won't, it resulted in self-reflection, a lot of attention. And we'll really what came out of it was when it was all said and done, you distill it, it was a breakdown in trust between our, our uh, junior enlisted and our and our leaders, the, both the NCOs and officers, and we can talk about why if we want, but it, it is what it is. It, it, and one of the driving issues was the operational tempo here at Fort Hood, and really across the Army. And you you happen to be like adjacent to this what happening. You mentioned you're like you're the standing Third Corps commander for that warfighter exercise, and uh, your your general was was in Europe, I think. And, um, but then you, you really got tasked with kind of like trying to put your hands around this problem and, 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 and solve it for the army solve it for Fort Hood. Right. I mean, that was a big part of what your role was, I think. Right. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. The Corps commander was still deployed. He was in, a, in, in Iraq at the time and still in Baghdad with the Corps headquarters. And so the command sergeant major and I were back here and, uh, it, it was becoming a strategic issue for the for the army, um, and I think that I, I remember sitting there with the sergeant major and like, hey, we are not going to solve this sitting on the third floor of the corps headquarters. I mean, we're going to have to get out, and we're going to have to we're going to to attack this this issue of uh, this breakdown of trust, and so. Really what it came down to, if you really want to boil it down to is uh, the soldiers didn't feel like their leaders knew who they were. You know, they were like cogs in a machine. Just do what, do what you're told. I don't care about your problems. I don't care about your family. I don't, and, uh, you know, and it, it comes down to trust and trust is built on relationships and relationships, uh, are built over time. And for a leader, it has to do with empathy and, and truly getting genuinely know somebody. So we really started with, hey, let's focus on, let's get to know our soldiers. Because the feedback from the soldiers, right? My leader doesn't know me. And therefore I don't trust him or her. And uh, so we did a couple things, uh, two, I'll, I'll just hit two initiatives that we, we did that had, I think, tremendous impact. The first one was, Every leader in the core 
specifically here at Fort Hood. It's the first cavalry division, the regiment, and all the separate brigades here at Fort Hood. Every leader had to write their story, which was how I grew up. I don't want it, you know, not a regurgitation of your ORB or, or your ERB. How did you grow up? Like, share your story. And it could only be one page, front back, no longer. And then every leader had to share that story with their all their soldiers that they were the first line leader of. And then every soldier had to write their story and give it to their leader. Uh, I, to me, it's been a game changer. Um, and I started it. Like I, I wrote my story, and I didn't just limit it to um, my the people that were directly under me. I, I, I spread it to for the everybody in the division that's read my story. And it talks about how I grew up. You know, my parents got divorced. What did that What did that do to me? You know, and how did that shape me? And uh, and it's amazing what that I think that one initiative has done to create bonds between soldiers and their leaders. For example, uh, I have a number. So I read all my battalion commander stories, and when I see my battalion commanders, these are successful army leaders top 10, 15% of their year group. And they seem like they have just like the normal life. Nothing's ever bad has happened. And I have, I have battalion commanders that, who were sexually assaulted as, as kids. You never would have known that, right? I mean, if they hadn't told it in their story and they have to trust you enough to put it in their story, right? Uh, that that, that uh, got kicked out of their house when they were 16 and lived in their car the last year of their high school before they went, you know, and they've kind of fought their way back and and, and here they are, their battalion commanders. And, and it really made me realize, oh my gosh, people actually have lives beyond the green suit that we, we see and that what they show you on a day-to-day basis. And it changes how you're gonna lead them because once you get to know somebody as a person beyond their uniform, you're gonna change how you're gonna lead them and how you interact with them. And, and you saw that at every echelon down to the staff sergeant who used to treat all eight people in his or her squad exactly the same. And now they know, wait, this person, uh, oh, they were they actually were homeless before they joined the army. Oh, this person plays the piano and w- could have gone to college on a musical. It just changes and, and all of a sudden they're people instead of just another soldier in a green uniform that comes to work at 630 and leaves at 1700 and goes to the field. And so we really honed in on get to know your soldier beyond the uniform. And that all of a sudden started to build trust. And this, and then this goes to, I mean, now you can take it back to Vanessa Guillen. So Vanessa Guillen did not trust her squad leader because her squad leader didn't know anything about her other than she was a specialist and she was a small arms repair trooper. And so she wasn't going to go to him and say, I'm being sexually harassed by another NCO in the formation. She did tell her mother, though, and her sisters, and they knew, which goes to our next initiative, which is the Golden Triangle. Because this is what we learned from the Vanessa Guillen scenario or situation, and that is somebody 
in that soldier's life knows if something is not right. The person who needs to know is the first line leader, because then we can we can attack the problem, we can get them the help that they need. And so imagine when we say the golden triangle, imagine the triangle and the first line leader is at the top. And then one corner is the family member. And what we have the soldier do is do is identify that one individual in your life, your mom, your dad, your aunt, your uncle, your grandfather, your brother, whoever it is that if, if things are really bad, that's who you, you confide in. And then the other corner of the triangle is your, your closest friends, your confidants. It's not your squad mate. Well, it could be, but it's typically not your squad mate. It's maybe somebody you went to high school with, maybe your last unit, somebody you grew up with. And we, what we've done is we've required the first line leader to make a phone call to those two people. So the family member that's identified by the soldier and that, and that friend. Because inevitably, when we have what we call SIRs, serious incident reports, you know, when something bad's happened, somebody knew, but the, the senior, the, the, the first line leader did not know. And so it goes like, it, it, uh, it goes something like this. Imagine a staff sergeant calls um, uh, Private West's uh, mom. And says, uh, "Ma'am, I am your I'm I'm your daughter's uh, first line leader. That's a boss in the army, and I just wanted to let you know that she is doing great. You'd be extremely proud of her. Uh, and if I just want you to know that if you ever have a concern or a question, this is my personal cell phone, and you can call me. Imagine that, like." When we were growing up in the army, right, that that stuff didn't happen. No one called your parents. Like when you left, like when I left for West Point, I left on my own. Like, like I'm on my own journey now. My my parents didn't have anything to do with it, and they sure didn't have anything to do with me when I was a lieutenant. Uh, and and but the world has changed with with technology. These kids are com completely connected to their family or whoever that person is. They're in constant contact. Matter of fact, you could be talking to them and they're talking to their mom on the phone while you're talking to them. And so you can't discount the, the, the family when it comes to the dynamic of that person's life. And so what we found is, uh, and we've got dozens and dozens of examples where family members have called and said, hey, you called me like six months ago and you said if I ever had a concern, to call you, my son is not acting right. I know him, he, that something is not right. He is saying things and doing things that are just out of character. Will you please go check on him? And that alerts the first line leader, goes straight to the barracks room. We've had, I would say, I, I couldn't give you a number, but it is well over a dozen suicide preventions from from a family member or a friend from the Golden Triangle who's called the first line leader and said there's something wrong and, and we've intervened. And, and I think those, those two initiatives, uh, how you grew up story and the Golden Triangle have helped to rebuild trust between the soldiers 
and the leaders because now all of a sudden they they know my leader actually cares about me he wants to know who i am and that if i'm in trouble that they will contact somebody uh that that can help me because you know your typical soldier doesn't want to show their first line leader they have a weakness or i have a problem they want to show strength and you know not let the team down uh, but we all know all of us have problems in life right i mean i've got my my fair share and uh and it's just a facade to show your first line leader that nothing's wrong and this is an outlet to allow the first line leader to find out and and be able to to help ronnie they started um doing the whole story thing in pl 300 we've done that for years and had the cadets write their own story to understand who they were as leaders and to figure out those crucible moments that defined them. But interestingly, back in 20, 2019, it was when we had one of the biggest um, reports about West Point, the sexual assault at West Point. And then also when the we had a couple of the racism incidents that happened at West Point. And so that was one of one of the things that General Williams really pushed on. And that was he had cadets stand, sit up on a stage in front of the rest of the Corps to tell their story. And it was really powerful. I remember the one where he had, um, it was a black cadet tell his story about how the police um, had killed his father. And then it was a white cadet who said, my father is a policeman. And so the two of them told their stories, but just it was, we've got to get all of this out and understand right. each other's stories so that we can get to know each other and build back up the trust with one another. So that's, I'm, I'm really proud of you for doing that. That's awesome. Thanks. Yeah, what an incredible initiative. And this goes, you know, far beyond just, you know, um, first cab. I mean, I think the Army in general is kind of like taking notice of your leadership and is, you know, making sure that this is just, it goes beyond just Fort Hood. So that is fantastic. And, uh, you know, our classmate D.A. Sims was in command of first ID when, when I was the board DCG when this was going on. And he did a lot of the very similar things up at Fort Riley that we were doing here at Fort Hood. And, uh, you know, he, he said something that I, that I have kind of, repeated a number of times because I think he really captures it well. Yeah, I, I'm sure most people know D.A. Sims. I mean, he's brilliant. I mean, he's just, he's, a, he's an incredible leader. And, uh, you know, he said, uh, you know, a lot of times we talk, when we talk readiness in the Army, we talk uh, unit status report, the old USR. Do you have your people? Do you have your equipment? Okay, you have your equipment, is it ready maintenance-wise? And then are you trained, right? And you guys remember the old RTIPs and yada, yada, yada. And, uh, and, and that's how the Army defines readiness is what we like to call PSR&T, personnel, uh, your supply status, your readiness of those supplies and your training, PSR&T. And sometimes that can give you a false sense of security. The Army likes to, they like to um, to assess what they can count because it's objective. And so PSR and T is very objective, but there is the, and, and we do this in first, 
in the first cavalry division, and that is there is a there's an element of readiness that can't be captured in in numbers and PSR and P, and that it has to do with trust and cohesion. And DA Sims used to say, if you focus on people and building the trust and the cohesion, those other four things will just follow. Because you'll build this team where, yes, they, they will they will get they'll they won't have a problem working a little bit late in the motor pool because it's a cohesive team and they're going to do it and they're going to train hard because they're a cohesive team and they're going to do it. And so I thought, I mean, it's a simple, it's a classic DSM. So you can just capture things in, in such a way. I'm not even presenting it as well as he could. Uh, but you know, that if you just focus, if you focus on people and trust, the rest will follow. And you saw it. You saw it in First Infantry Division under his command. You saw a huge change. And it was the same time period because he was in command at the same time that this was going on at Fort Hood. And he 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 was smart enough to know this isn't a Fort Hood thing. This is an Army thing. And I'm not going to let it happen at Fort Riley. And so he tried to focus on it there at Fort Riley. And, and he actually talks a lot about that in a podcast that I posted a while ago. Um, it was with our other with our classmate, Scott Halstead interviewing him and they're talking about this initiative and he mandated that every soldier needed to go for mental health counseling mm -hmm. and even if they just sat there and talked about nothing other than the hockey game last night it didn't yep. matter they were in the seat and that got that whole process going right. so, and he and the brigade commanders were the first ones to walk through the door to yeah kind of send this signal that hey this is this is not there's no stigma behind going and talking to someone yeah so speaking about going and talking to people how often do you get on the line, like with DA Sims or Joe Ryan or Rick Angle or Dave Hodney or Johnny Braga or any of the other, you know, people that are leading the army? Um, uh, who's got the tenth, 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 tenth. Can you hear my dog? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, we have bugles on post. So the uh, call to quarters is at 2100 here. Nice. And so, uh, every when, night when the bugles go off every night he uh that's so funny he'll, he'll be done in just a minute um so uh I, we should we should probably communicate more than than we do um i would say those of us who are in like units communicate more uh you know, like uh, Charlie Costanza's in command of 3ID. So right. he and I cross talk a lot. Uh, and then. So when you say you cross talk, you like text each other by, you know, like, by the way, you know, like, or, like you get on the phone call, like, do you have like a standing agenda with him? Like, what? what no, what, no, no. It's all informal. It's all informal. I picture like all the, like a, like, um, like a war <laughs> council of all the 91 people saying, you know what? Um, we could take right. the world right now. We could world domination is what we could do right here. Yeah. Well, and you know, I mean, our class did pretty well in division command. Uh, yeah. Uh, I think we so we were command of first cavalry division, first infantry division, third infantry division, fourth infantry division, tenth mountain. Greg Anderson's in tenth mountain now, and then uh, Joe Ryan out twenty fifth, and then John Braga, you U.S. Army. Uh, in a three-star job at U.S. Army Special Op uh, uh, yeah, Special Operations Command, and so Rick and Rick, and Rick, yeah, and Rick as well. And so, I mean, uh, now I like to joke though. Uh, you know that we're all working for ninety-two though. 
you know, 92 got the core commands. We got the division commands and 92 jumped above us. And uh, so my neighbor, two, two houses down, is class of 92 and he's my boss. Uh, but not for uh, long, though, he's right? And he's a great one, too. But not for long. He came into that role. Like you inherited that guy. He like he came into the role, but you're leaving. So you're going right. to hopefully be moving on to bigger and better things yourself, right? Yeah. And uh, so it's, uh, I, I think, I mean, as much as I, I and I'm, it's disappointing we don't talk more, but I think uh, we would all agree it was so overwhelmed day to day basis. We really almost don't have time to, to reach out other than the big things. Like if we learn a big, really where we get together is when, when our bosses bring us, bring us together to share, uh, you know, good ideas. I'll tell you though, Charlie Stans has been awesome about uh, sharing some, because uh, he said he got out of kind of, uh, he did some war fighters and uh, which are, you know, com um, division level uh, simulations where you drive your staff to proficiency. And he was unbelievable about sharing that with me. And because I was kind of six to eight months behind him. And uh, he's been awesome about sharing those. Dave Hodney's done a lot of great initiatives as well. Um, and he shares them with everybody. I mean, classmate or not classmate, he's sharing them with, with everybody. Uh, and then DA Sims, I just, I went to school on DA Sims because I got, he was in command while I was waiting to take command. And I was just going to, like I said, taking notes and saying, I'm going to do that when I'm in command. I'm going to do that when I'm in command. And so um, right. indirectly, uh, I've, I've done a lot that uh, the DA put into motion up in first infantry division. So let's, let's go back all the way back to the beginning, pre-1987, you know, young John Richardson, high school, <laughs> high school stud, like, what were you, what, what interests you in West Point, what made you want to go to West Point, tell me about all that, like, led you to that decision. So, uh, I've got a lot of West Pointers in my family, uh, going back to uh, class of uh, 04, 1904. And uh, and I had two grandfathers. My dad did not go to West Point, which is a really interesting story. So I'll, can, uh, can I tell a really quick story? Yeah, please. Okay. So um, so here's my dad. My dad, both his grandfathers went to West Point. His dad went to West Point, and his uncle went to West Point. Like he's the only male in the family at this point who has not gone to West Point. So he really didn't have a choice. He's like. When he was born, he's like, you're going to West Point. They even knew what class, he was supposed to be a class of 66. Uh, and uh, so uh, he goes and uh, it takes him a year. He fails the entrance exam. My dad, my grandfather was stationed in Korea at the time with the first cavalry division. And uh, he took the entrance exam. It was pre-SAT, like West Point had its own kind of exam. And he failed it. He went to Japan to take it and he failed it. And uh, so he had to do it like a year at a prep school. Uh, and so he had his appointment. It was, we've got to get all of this out and understand. Right. What's that? You're muted, Jamie. Okay. Sorry about that. That was my bad. I, I, uh, I muted myself. I had sound going in the background. Sorry about that. Okay. I heard something. Okay, so uh, so uh, he passes the 
the academic uh, exam. He passes, um, uh, he, oh, he's got his appointment. All he needs is to pass the physical. And back then, uh, it wasn't the DOD physical. You, like each academy had its own physical. And so my grandfather, who was a colonel at the time, takes him up to the West Point to get the physical. And uh, he goes in and he's just about done. The doctor was a captain and he, he's sitting at the, you know, when you at the doctor and you're wearing the little vest that ties in the back and your feet are hanging off the thing, you know, and, and, and the doctor looks down and he's like, hey, you, you only have four toes on one foot. And my dad was like, yeah, always been that way, you know. So my dad was born, his foot's just a little bit more narrow. He's got a big toe and he had a pinky toe and he's got two, and it's not like he's missing a digit or anything. It's just, his whole foot is just a little more narrow and he's got four toes. And the doctor looked at him and he's like, you can't be in the army with four toes. It's like, you know, fail, right? And uh, so they go out in the hallway and my grandfather's waiting. I mean, this was the least of my grandfather's concerns, right? I mean, he was concerned about him academically. And because uh, and he he'd played baseball, football, wrestling in high school. I mean, he was a high school athlete. And uh, the doctor comes out and he's like, so your son failed the physical. And my grandfather's like, what? Yeah, he, he's only got four toes. Of, so you knew the day he was born, he wasn't going to West Point. I mean, he's going to have problems with that leg his entire life. His foot isn't, it's not going to be able to take the, the uh, you know, the weight. And he did. He ended up having knee and ankle problems his whole, you know, as he got into his 40s and 50s. And my grandfather, and this is my dad's side of the story, he's like, hey, listen, Captain, you're going to pass my son on this. And the, to the doctor's credit, he's like, sir, I'm a doctor first and I'm a captain second. You want to take it up the chain of medical chain of command? You're welcome to. And my grandfather's like, damn it. Yeah, you know, he <laughs> walks out, right? So he takes him to the Naval Academy. And the Naval Academy didn't care about the four toes. But uh, he failed the hearing. And he does. He's like partially deaf in one ear. So he failed, uh, he failed the hearing. Then they, he's like, hey, I think they've stood up some new academy out there in Colorado Springs for the Air Force. Let's go out there. They didn't care about the hearing. He passed the hearing and they didn't care about the toes, but he wore glasses. And back in the 50s or 60s, you you had to be a pilot and there was no corrective. Like you couldn't wear glasses and go to the Air Force Academy in the 60s. So he couldn't go there. So they took him to the Coast Guard Academy and they're like, oh, sorry. Whatever the Navy said is what we say. And then my grandfather found out, like, the Merchant Marine Academy. So you take him down there and they were like, we don't care about any of that stuff. Come on in. So he actually went to the Merchant Marine Academy for a year. Hated it. And he was like, dad, I am not doing this. This is terrible. And he, you know, he left. Um, and so he never pressured me because obviously he grew up very pressured. And, uh, and I had not really considered it and uh, and I had two grandfathers, so my grandfather on my my dad's side is a class of thirty four, and he put direct pressure. Oh, are you still there? Yep, we're still here. We're still here. Yeah. Can you see me? You like, yeah, we can my, see. My yep. screen went away. Uh, nope, you're still good. Okay. Maybe um, or something. So uh, 
my grandfather on my paternal side, direct pressure, constant. And uh, on my mom's side, so my mom's father was an ROTC uh, cadet and uh, graduated from the University of Florida as a reserve officer. And he, he was activated during uh, or mobilized during World War II. So, the, and this is an interesting part of the West Point history. Like up until World War II, nobody came back to West Point to teach the attack or anything unless you were a grad. That was just kind of how it was. First of all, that's pretty much the whole officer corps up to World War II anyway, but um, it was you know, very insulary. And uh, the first time outside eyes kind of got into West Point was during World War II. And my grandfather was, was part of that cohort. And that is they pulled the regular army officers out of West Point who were tax impedes to send them off to World War II. And they brought reserve officers who were teachers in their civilian jobs. So my grandfather was teaching uh, high school math at the time. And they brought them onto active duty to teach the cadets at West Point. So my, grand, my grandfather on my mom's side taught uh, math and he was also a basketball coach. And he taught, uh, they had like a plebe team and he taught the plebe basketball team. My, grand, my, my maternal grandfather, who's not a grad, loved West Point more than anybody else in my family and maybe anybody else in the history of the world. I mean, this guy just thought he had Patton's son in this class. He had Eisenhower's son in this class. He just thought that he thought the ideals of West Point were just so powerful that he, he just put it on a pedestal above and beyond uh, anything else he had seen in, in, throughout his life. How, he was much, he was much more he was been. much more passive about how he you know he would just leave a pamphlet here and a pamphlet there for me. Well, both of them gave up about the time I was a sophomore in high school, maybe beginning of my junior year. I I had uh, kind of I was a little bit wild in high school. I think I had, I don't remember if I had two or three earrings, and this is back when people didn't have earrings. Uh, and I think both of them kind of gave up. And then one day I was in uh, I was in history class and we were talking about Napoleon. And I was like, that's really interesting. And I don't know what it was. I don't know if I, the reality that I needed to get my life together or, or what, but I made a decision somewhere right around the beginning of my junior year that, um, that I was gonna pursue West Point. And, uh, and I did. And uh, so, that's how I ended up uh, end up as a cadet. And I, I hate that the people who will listen to this podcast are not going to get to watch it and see that behind you, I can see three West Point diplomas. Most times you only see the one, but I see at least three and there might be more. I don't know. So, yes, I have my, uh, my, my great grandfather's uh, 1904 diploma, my grandfather's 1934, and then mine. I, I, I never got a hold of my other great grandfathers or my great uncles. I don't know where they are. Um, what's you really unique about my great grandfathers in 1904, um, I don't know if anyone ever noticed when you walked into the, uh, there's a few buildings of the, like the Soup's office, uh, Bartlett Hall, 
that were built before 1928, yeah. where the crest is backwards. Yeah. Um, and uh, and it has to do with when they told the 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 guy who designed the the West Point crest in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, hey, the eagle is supposed to look to the right, kind of like a colonel's rank when you're, yep. you're looking at it. It's supposed to be looking to the right. So he thought, oh, looking to the right. And he made it as, as if you're looking at it, looking to the right. And so uh, he made the eagle looking actually to the eagle's left. And then he thought the helmet should go the same direction as the eagle. And so from whenever that crest, I, I don't really know the exact date, it was Sometime in the late 1800s. Uh, that was 1920s. It, well, so the crest was wrong from the late 1800s until 1928 when yeah. someone realized, hey, the eagle's supposed to be looking the other way. Right. <laughs> and uh, so they, they switched the eagle and they said, well, if we switch the eagle, you got to switch the helmet because it looks wrong if the, the eagle's looking one way and the helmet's the other. So my great-grandfather's Diploma, the eagle and the helmet are facing the wrong direction because it was before uh, 1920. And then my grandfather's and like it looks like ours, which is yeah, you know, looking right. There's Very some cool. serious, some serious Greyhog uh, uh, trivia going on here. Right? Yeah, oh, I'm full of. Uh, uh, don't even get me started on Greyhog trivia and and cavalry trivia. Uh, but this is uh, so since we're talking 1904, this is another good. Uh, uh, just small army, small West Point story. You know, I, I kind of told the story of Chris Dempsey. I knew him as a kid, and you know, here he is. He's a brigade commander for me now. Uh, in in Afghanistan in 2017, uh, I was in a, in a dining facility line, mess hall line, and uh, three people in front of me is a uh, is a female major, and I saw her name, it said Stillwell, and it only had one L, which is a little unusual, and I'm like, and, and being a, a student of World War II, and, you know, I knew uh, uh, Vinegar Joe Stillwell, the four-star general who was in charge of the China-Burma theater, a little less known than, you know, Eisenhower and, and MacArthur, uh, and so, Stillwell, uh, known as Vinegar Joe Stillwell, was my great grandfather's classmate and actually was a roommate with him uh, for one semester, which, by the way, the odds are not high because there was only 125 of them in the class. And uh, so everyone knew everybody back then. And uh, so I, I went up to her and I was like, and because I, I thought to myself, there's no way. There's no way she's related to Vinegar Joe Stillwell. So I went up to her and I said, uh, hey, Major Stillwell, uh, um, are you by any chance related to General Stillwell, Vinegar Joe Stillwell? Well, in fact, sir, he's my great grandfather. I said, really? I said, just so you know, your great grandfather and my great grandfather were classmates and they were roommates one semester. Completely bizarre. We're standing in the middle of uh, Jalalabad, Afghanistan, and here we are, you know, two great grandkids of classmates standing together. 
which then she became my, she was the S3 of, uh, of an aviation battalion. And she had to get her flight time to keep her, you know, her flight certification. So every time I had to fly, she would be always the one that would pick me up. And we did a little bit more research. 100 years to the year, her great-grandfather, my great-grandfather were in the same trench in France to when she and I were in Afghanistan 100 years later. Wow. Unbelievable. Oh, oh, and oh, by the way, that was five years ago. Last summer, she came to the 1st Cavalry Division and took a, one of the aviation battalions, and I handed her the battalion colors as she took command in the 1st Cavalry Division. Unbelievable. Cool. Unbelievable. So, so Johnny, let's, let's talk about West Point real quick, because you're getting getting into West Point was only the beginning of the journey, right? You had some uh, you had some tough sledding there at West Point, right? Yeah, uh, yes, academically. So I should I should just reach back to the family a bit here. So my grandfather, my great grandfather, class of '04, and my grandfather, class of '34, are the only father and son goats in the history of West Point. Really. Yes, what they, a, uh, they were both the goat, goat of thirty of 04 and the goat of thirty four. No, and kidding. then on my and then my great grandfather, my grandmother's dad was third from the bottom, and his son, who was class of four, uh, forty, was fifth from the bottom. So Good we don't have a strong academic record at West Point uh, as a family, and uh, and so uh, I. I followed suit. I, I I didn't finish quite that low, but that's because of staff. Because you know, back back then you didn't go to staff. Um, you know, if you failed, you got kicked out, and then you could retest and come back. But then you did the whole year again, um, and it didn't affect your class rank. Whereas my staff grades kind of kept me. I mean, I didn't finish very high. Well, how many times did you, wait, wait what, what, what did you fail? What, what classes? Did, did uh, computers. Computers. Uh, uh, calc one and problem stats. Okay. Did you fail that mini tab project? I don't, I don't know what that is. The Remember the artillery? It was the artillery. Uh, yeah. We, Mark we, failed that. Yeah, did he? Yeah. So here you are, your sophomore year. Yeah. You three classes in four semesters. Yeah. What is happening? So tell me, tell me about that story. What what was your what was going on in your in your head? What was your life like at at, at that point in time? Uh. So, the second semester yearling year. I failed my third class. That, that was problem stats. So I've used up all my summers already. So I, I didn't get to go do any cool training during the summer. I spent all my summers at, at staff. And uh, that semester, I did really poorly. I, I got a 1.2 for the semester. And a 1.8 was my QM going into Cal year. And remember, it was 2-0 and go. And so I had an academic board. And uh, 
and I think most people thought the chips, no one was putting chips down on me. Let's just say, say that, including my dad who had already bought my plane ticket home. And, uh, and so I, I was pretty convinced that I was gonna get kicked out and I, I was a little distraught. Now my roommate at staff was my, was also my academic year roommate. That shows you how much studying was going on in that room. Um, Rob yeah. Proctor, Rob Proctor at the time. But Rob was okay because Rob, that was the first class Rob had failed and he had a he had well over a 2-0. So he wasn't in any any danger of being separated. But I was definitely in the zone of uh, of uh, risk. Well ho hold on a second. Let's hit the stage a little bit further though. Okay. So, like how about like physical fitness wise, you're doing well. Uh, yeah, I was doing uh, average. Average, uh, I was doing really well in leadership. And I'll be honest, so this is my mindset. So my, my, all my family did very well in the army militarily. And so I kind of had to, I came in with kind of this image that um, West Point was a means to an end and the end was a commission. If I could have my commission, then I'll, I don't care about the academic. Huge regret of mine, probably one of my biggest regrets, because we all know all the opportunities that West Point provides every cadet there academically and beyond. I did not take advantage, especially of the academics. It wasn't that I couldn't do it. I just wasn't applying myself because I kind of came from this family that did, didn't do well and didn't apply themselves academically at West Point, but then did do well in the military. And so I was like... I don't need to do well academically. I just, I just need my commission. Well, you, by the way, you've kind of proven that, haven't you? <laughs> well, I, yeah, but again, but I had a huge regret. But, but I, I have a paper. I, I, I have a paper that I have a paper that you wrote while you were at Harvard University. Yeah, the irony of that. The, iron, the irony. By the way, that's a wonderful paper. We're going to talk about that. We have to talk about that. Hey, um, while we're talking about academics, I have one thing because I was cleaning out today. And I actually found these. Wow. How about that? Oh, and so this is my EN 102 papers, my HI 103 papers. I'm kind of embarrassed when you read them now. And this one is my Millart. No, this is EN 102. So I've got my papers, comments, and everything. Nice. Pretty interesting. Yeah. So, so, uh, you're right, so, so I'm sitting so there, I'm down. sitting there, so I have to go, I have to go to the academic board. Right. And uh, by coincidence, my, my, my academic year TAC was also my staff TAC. And so for those who haven't gone through an academic board, you don't actually go to, it's not like a board, you don't go, just your file goes up there and then they, they talk about it, the comms there, the deans there, the tax are there, the P's are there, and they kind of, you know, give you the thumbs up, thumbs down. And uh, uh, the word that I got was that my tack went to back for me, Major Morris, who, by the way, did not do well as a cadet when he was there in the, uh, in, uh, I'm going to say he graduated in the late 70s. Um, now, by coincidence, so his great his grandfather my great grandfather were classmates in the class of 07 i don't know if that influenced it at all but uh he uh he went to bat for me and 
and I came out okay. Uh, I, I'll still remember though, the, when he left the academic board, you, were, you had to sit in your room. Everybody was supposed to be in your room and he would come tell you if you had been separated. And, and if he came to your room, knocked on your door, you knew that he was coming to tell you that he, you were separated. So he's coming by, down. The by the way, by the way, yeah. you were later attacked, but what a shitty job that has to be going around telling these cadets. Mm. Hey, I mean, I mean, it's just heartbreaking to have to yeah. do this to these young kids, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But all right, so 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 you're in your room where you're on your I'm trunk. Sitting, yeah, I'm sitting in. Imagine this. I'm sitting in gym A. I'm sitting on my tr- green trunk at the end of my bed. My roommate's in there, my academic year roommate, who's now my staff roommate, Rob Proctor. He's got his hand on my shoulder. I've got my ha- hand in my head. I'm just waiting for the door. Knock. I can hear him coming down. He's knocking. He knocked on the door next to us, went in. He's in there for about 30 seconds, shut the door, and he comes to our door. And I can see his feet, the shadow of his feet under the, the door. And I'm just waiting for the knock. And he stood there. It felt like forever. It was probably 10 seconds. And then he kept going. And I jumped up from the, and I opened the door. And I'm like, sir. He was like, you can thank me later. You know, and he said something to the effect of, you've been given a second chance. And I was like, oh my Lord, thank you. Um, and I survived, you know, I made it to the end. Um, and I vowed, I think, I think it was about that time that I vowed, I'm coming back as a tack. I'm going to pay for it here and, and, and do the same for somebody else. In, in, or not just one person, but, you know, for, for people who have an opportunity that may be struggling, maybe a little immature, because that's all it was in my case. It was immaturity. And, uh, uh, and, and, and if they have potential, you give them a second chance and, and see where they run with it, which really then takes me to when I was attacked. So I go back as attacked nine years later. And, uh, you know, I've got this, this cadet, he's a firstie. Um, and he's a good kid, but he's a terrible cadet. You know, he's just one of those guys who's just going to buck the system. You know, he's, you can just say, that guy's going to be a good second lieutenant. He's a terrible cadet, you know, because he's just, he isn't buying in fully, right? And, uh, and it's, here it is, it's grad week. And uh, his entire family is already there. His grandparents, his aunts, his uncles, everybody's already there in the hotels in the local area. We're, we're within five days of graduation. And he and his buddies go down to Highland Falls because when I was there, you know, we couldn't drink in Highland Falls. But when I went back as a tack, they could drink in Highland Falls. The first was good. And uh, they had a plan, right? They had a DD. Well, the DD decided he was going to drink. And so now they're all drinking. And uh, they made the decision that this, this, in, this cadet that was in, in my company, uh, he decided he was the, quote, most sober. <laughs> and so they try to drive back on the post. He gets stopped. He gets a DUI. And, uh, and so he, there's, it's, it's not an academic board, but it's this 
June 4th at the end of the year, who's graduating and who's not. And uh, the BTO at the time, and we, I don't think we had a BTO when we were there, but it's the brigade tactical officer above the RTOs. He wanted this guy gone. He was like 100%, give him his credits and he can go somewhere else and graduate. He is not going to be an officer in the United States Army. I went to the RTO, who was a great dude, Steve Dwyer, aviator. And, uh, you know, West Point lacrosse player. So you can, you know, the mentality, you know, and a uh, great dude. And uh, also ma married to a graduate from the first class, from the class of 80. And, uh, and I said, I went to him, I said, sir, we have invested so much into this guy and he is a good leader. He is a good, he's a good person. He made a stupid mistake. It's a maturity issue. He will, he will be a great lieutenant. We've got to get him a second chance. I said, do not, I, I got it. He can't graduate with this class, but you know, I made a play for a December grad. I said, sir, make him a December grad and I'll, I'll be his special mentor. I'll make him a platoon leader. He, he didn't need it. I mean, he took classes, but he didn't need to, obviously. And he had all of his credits. Um, you know, we'll tailor his, his classes. We'll have leadership classes. Da, 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 da. And uh, he's like, all right, I'll go to bat with for him. And so we got to the board. <laughs> and the RTO, the, the comms looks at the RTO. And I'm like, ready for the RTO to stand up and fight for me. It's like. So General, uh, or uh, I'm sorry, Major Richardson will, will now speak on. Who's the calm? Uh, who's the calm? Oh, who was the calm? It was uh, um, No, it was Brooks. It was uh, before Brooks. It wasn't Abizade. It was after Abizade. St. Ange? No. I don't remember. I'll look it up. You keep telling the story. I'm gonna, okay. Between and, so, yeah. and so he he puts me on the, the RTO puts me on. I'm like in the back. So the tax sit like in the back row. We don't we don't have a speaking part, right? I mean, and the RTO turns it over to me, and I'm like, uh. And I I made my plea, uh, and the BTO came over the top against me, and like that captain, oh, that major doesn't know what he's talking about. This kid should be kicked out. He's not what we want, doesn't have the character, et cetera, et cetera. Now, Olson, there it is. I just saw someone. Yep. Uh, yes, it was it was General Olson. And in uh, the comm sat there and he, he contemplated for a little bit and he kind of split the baby. He didn't kick him out, but he made him do his whole first year again. Oh not my God, around. really? The so whole full, full turn back. Full turn back. And uh, he, basically so, got a, he basically got a master's degree from West Point. Yeah. Well, funny you say that. So the kid graduates. First of all, huge life-changing experience for him, right? I mean, he grew up really fast. He's like, I got to get my act together. He was a great first year that final year. Uh, and then he goes out to the Army. He has since made three-time below the zone promotion, early promotion to major, early promotion lieutenant colonel, early promotion to colonel. I actually, they, they now have these uh, promotions in the last couple of years called brevet promotions, like civil war kind of thing. Uh, and I actually pinned on his brevet 
colonel promotion. Uh, the Army, he, he competed for and earned uh, the opportunity to uh, go to Georgetown to get a master's in public policy. And the Army sent him to get a PhD. And he's going to be a brigade commander next year. I mean, this, I mean, and he's, he's going to be way more than that. I mean, this kid is going to go all the way for our, mm. our nation. And, uh, and uh, to think, we almost kicked him out. Well, to think, go back to Major Morris, right? Who almost kicked you out. Who could have, right. like, he went to yeah. back with you. You went, paid it forward. You went to back for this kid. And now our army is better off because here you are commanding a division and this this guy is going to be commanding a brigade and then probably something else. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing so I'm a huge, I'm a huge second chance guy. I mean, I just, I feel like, um, we're all human. We're all human. We all make mistakes. That you know, some mistakes are different than others. But uh, if if you can learn from it and you can move on, then and, and be a better leader and a better person because of it, then then that's the kind of person you want to invest in. And you don't want to burn people over you know something that is recoverable. Great point. Great point. So what, what other memorable moments from West Point do you have before we move on to the Army? Like any, like if you could go back and relive a single day at West Point, do it, do something over again, whether it's graduate or be there to counsel yourself at staff or, you know, in a day room situation or like what would be the day that you would relive if you could? So I, I'll, so I'll tell two West Point stories real quick. So, um, and one just, I think it had, had a tremendous impact on me about loyalty. And that was a, a story that involved some members of H3. I was a member of H3 and uh, some member of, of members of I3. And uh, a group of us, I think it was somewhere approximately between six and eight of us, we went down to Florida with a couple bottles of vodka. <clears throat> and uh, I, I don't remember if we were plebes or yearlings. I feel like we were plebes. We might have been yearlings. And uh, we we're going we we're to drink down to Florida and then we we're going to go up to Ike Hall and, you know, dance. And, uh, and uh, we're, we're there. And uh, one of the members from I3 was Mike Mel. Uh, and I don't know. You know Mike uh, Hummer, uh, you mm -hmm. know hockey player, and uh, he had just broken up with his girlfriend. So we have two bottles of vodka, and we're we're drinking it with some orange juice, and and uh, the the six of us drank one bottle, and maybe a quarter of the other one, and then we were like, hey, let's let's head up to Ike Hall, and uh, and and Hummer Hummer is kind of he's kind of depressed, he's sad about breaking up. He's like, I'm gonna stay here with the other three quarters of a bottle of vodka. And, uh, you know, he uh, he goes on to, to finish that three quarters bottle of vodka by himself and work his way back to central area. We all go to, you know, we go to iCall. And so we're coming back from iCall and all of a sudden there's this huge commotion in central area. And Mike Camel, 
hockey player, has got like four dudes in white over gray. We're all in white over gray, but four dudes with white over gray with the Brazilians, you know, you know, cadet in charge and et cetera, et cetera, trying to hold him down. He's trying to fight everybody, including the captain and his greens, you know, the, I forgot what that position oh, was. Oh, I see. Oh, I see. <laughs> oh, I see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's taken four cadets and an officer to hold Mike down because he is, so he's, he is fit to be tied, right? So, and we all walk up to this, like, oh, we're like, oh, shit, we're all going down, right? So we all go back to our room. The next day, uh, it was, I, I know for a fact it was me, Rob Proctor, and Matt Zimmerman, and we go up. I feel like we pinged up there. That's why I feel like we were plebes, but maybe we were earrings. We go up to I-3 and we go into Hummer's room like, hey, take, do not you turn us in. Do not do anything that would jeopardize you being kicked out. We all, we, we did the crime. We'll pay the time. Do not, do not fall on your sword on this. And, and, and Hummer was like, nope, my dad's been very clear. If I rat on my friends, he doesn't want me coming home. And, and I'm like, and we were like, Homer, no, no, no. It's not worth it. You know, like, no, he's just saying that. And so Homer goes up and uh, I, God, I forget the RTO's name. He was a, she was a female. She was married to a Vietnam veteran. Like this. Oh, it was uh, Doc Bonson. Bonson. She was married to Doc yes. Bonson, yeah. Yes, Colonel Bonson. So, Hummer goes in there and she is just laying into him at his, you know, his whatever board and says, tell me who you were with. Oh, no, you let, you know, lecture, you let down your company, you let down your team, hockey team, because you're going to be on the area and you're not going to play hockey. And you let down this person, you let this, let down, let down, let down. And then she said, now I want you to tell me who you were with. And, or I'm gonna, or I'm going to kick you out. I recommend that you be kicked out. And and he says his, you know, his story was, ma'am, if I told you who I was with, I wouldn't be a very good teammate. And there was the, the silent. And she said, get out of here. And he took a hundred hours, and the rest of us got nothing, because he he didn't he didn't say. And I wow. was like, that is just. To, to me, I will never forget that. Well, let's let's think about this because if you were a plebe and then you had a hundred hour slug and you had the academic oh. problems, you might have been. Oh, I would have been kicked out, no doubt, no been, doubt. Yeah. So that so that guy was. Uh, we can maybe credit him for. Um, yeah. Uh, I should be. I know. should be. I should be putting like some savings away for him. Yeah, you should yeah. you should invite him to your next uh, chain of command for sure. Uh, well, he made me pay a couple uh, Army Navy games ago with shots of freaking vodka at some bar, and I I, I don't remember the Army Navy game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. So that that's that's one uh, that uh, that I just will always. I will never forget his his loyalty to his friends. That yeah, uh, and, and at the risk, he had no idea how she would react to that. 
she could easily have said, you're gone, you're done, you know, and, and thank goodness she didn't, but uh, yeah, I mean, I have never forgotten that, that, that sense of loyalty to your classmates and to your, to your fellow warrior. The other one I, I love to tell is how I got my branch and, and that I, with the branch that I got and my, my post, uh, if we have time for. Yeah. Uh, so uh, if you remember, we were the first class that actually submitted their branch choices on a computer. Like class of 90 still did the bubble. You know, you like filled out a bubble thing, like, you know, what branch you wanted, you filled in with a number two pencil and a bubble and you send it in and you found out later. We had that, if you remember, we had the intranet and it actually came up and you were supposed to, you had to rank what branches you wanted in order. And then you hit send and it went to, to some calculator. And uh, so when I went to West Point, I was 100% sure I was gonna be an infantry officer. My family have all been infantry. I just assumed that's what you did when you went to the, in the army, that you were infantry officer. And uh, I went to, when we went down to Knox, I was like, hey, I, I kind of like this tank. This is pretty cool. And then I read a book on Patton, I think between Yearling and Cal Year. And I'm like, I started like thinking, I might want to be a, an armor officer. And I didn't tell anybody, like all the guys in the company that were pretty close friends with, like Rob Proctor and Matt Zimmerman, you know, we're all, we all had like this pinky promise. We're all going to infantry. We're all going to ranger school together. And uh, I went home, uh, not at home. I went down to Maryland to visit my grandparents, my grandfather, the class of 34. And I assumed he would want me to go. And so I was like, I said, BJ, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about armor, just kind of feeling them out. And I didn't know how he was going to react. He's like, that's great. As long as you go combat arms, I don't care what you go, which, as you know, our class, if you're a male, you had to go combat arms. And so I was like, okay, but I didn't tell anybody in the company because everyone just assumed, hey, I'm going in, we're all going in free. And it got that, so here it is. It's the night of filling out the, the little computer program. Rob Proctor is my roommate. He knocks it out in less than 30 seconds. Infantry number one, I don't care whatever else, and he moves on. And I'm, and I have armor, then infantry, then field artillery, and then I don't remember after that. And uh, he looked at me like, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I've actually been thinking about armor. Say, hey, dude, we, we, we made a deal. We're, we have a pact. It was like a Seinfeld episode. And uh, I was like, yeah, but it's, I don't know. I, I'm feeling on it. So I kept flipping it. Infantry armor, infantry armor. And I kept going one, two, one, two, one, two. I had infantry, then armor. And then I said to him, I got to go to the bathroom. When I come back, I'm going to make my final decision. I go to the bathroom. I remember looking, holding on to the sink and looking in the mirror and go, you're an armor officer. Do what you know is right. I go back to the room and I'm ready to flip it, armor, infantry, and hit send. And I walk in and my screen is black. And I'm like, what, what, why is my screen black? And I look over and Rob's at his desk studying, which right off the bat, I knew something was suspect. 
like this is something's out of out of whack. I'm like, hey Rob, what what happened to my screen? And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, I can't get the screen to come back up. I can't get my, I don't know what you're talking about. While I was in the bathroom, he had hit send with On infantry with infantry number one, armor number two, and field artillery three. <laughs> so I'm thinking, well, I and I, I remember saying to him, well, I guess I'm going infantry. I'm like, that's how it is. So here it's branch night, and I'm sitting there. And armor had always gone out before infantry, right? I mean, especially after there's a storm, it kind of resurged. And so they passed out those, remember the little envelopes that they passed out? The little yellow envelope. We're at a, all at I call. And then we all ripped them open together and everyone was excited. And I'm rubbing it. And I'm like, this is too fat to be infantry. A lot of meat, a lot of meat there, a lot of meat, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then, so the first thing I thought to my head was, if it's not infantry, it can't be armor because armor would have gone out already before infantry. And then, and it's too fat even to be field artillery. Am I so low in the class that I got air defense artillery? And I rubbed it to the point where I felt like I could see the missile between the cannons. And everybody else was getting excited because, you know, 80, 90% of people get their first choice anyway. And then most people get their second choice. And I'm thinking, I got my fourth fourth or fifth choice. And I, I'm, I'm getting depressed. I'm like, I'm literally slumped down in the chair while everybody else, the fever is, is going on. And I call waiting for the comm to let us open them. I'm, I'm like, I guess I'm getting out in five years. And... Uh, they said, open it. I ripped it open. And as I pulled it out, it was as if it transformed into armor from, from uh, air defense. And I'm like, oh, my God. It turned out that infantry went out about 10 in front of me. And uh, you got branched. You got branched armor. I got branched, branched armor, yes. Yeah. And uh, so I ended up now, I was 113 out of 115. Two, two, uh, John Cook and uh, Derek Baxter also got armored behind me. Uh, but so that just shows, I mean, I was, I was meant to be an armor officer. I was meant to be a cavalryman, and somebody was watching out for me. Uh, and so that's, a, that's one of my cadet stories. A post-cadet story, which really ends up driving the rest of my career, is at the basic course. And that is... Uh, so, you know, I mentioned I was 113 out of 115 in the class and in, in armor. In the branch. Uh, and so our class was the first class to have to uh, fill trade-off positions. Prior to our class, class of 90 and before, we always got force comm units. You're going to be a platoon leader of a force comm unit. And uh, Cadet Command, ROTC Cadet Command, say, like, hey, this is not fair. Why are we having to suck up these TRADOC? Why doesn't West Point have to pull its fair share of TRADOC positions? And so somebody at the headquarters VA made the decision, yeah, West Point's going to take some TRADOC. And so uh, the last three people in the in armor got TRADOC, me, Derek, and, uh, and John Cook. I think John Cook got, we all, we somehow all weaseled out of it. Um, but so I'm sitting, so I'm in the basic course, 
everybody else is TDY making lots of money at, at Knox. It's a PCS for me. I'm making no money at, at the basic course because I'm staying at Knox. And I'm at, we're at the gunnery range. We were shooting tank gunnery. And um, matter of fact, I think, was Chuck Poche in your, your company? Yeah. He's my company. Yeah, Chuck my was roommate. on my, my tank. Chuck was on my tank. And we get done shooting, and it's yeah. imagine three lieutenants in a tank in the gunner loader driver's uh, gunner tank commander loader seat and a 19 kilo PFC in the driver's seat. And we're shooting gunnery, we're just trashing these tanks because we don't know what we're doing. And, and then we get it at the end of the day, we get out of the tanks, we go over to the bleachers and we wait for the big bluebird bus to pull up and take us back. And then, you know, somebody miraculously fixed the tanks and we come back the next day and do it again. This Humvee and this uh, five ton pull up and this first lieutenant gets out and he says, is there a second lieutenant Richardson here? And I'm in the stands like, uh, I said, I think I said, here, sir. He's like, you don't have to say, sir. I'm always having I'm like, okay. And I'm, I, I bebop over to him. And he's like, hey, uh, welcome to Charlie Company uh, you know, 316 cab. This is your platoon. I'm like, what do you mean this is, what do you mean my platoon? This is your platoon. Those four tanks out there that you've been shooting on, that's your platoon. And the, this is your platoon, the mechanics that are going to come out and work on the tanks all night while, while, and so that they're ready for the lieutenants the next day. And I'm thinking, Oh my board. This is not what they told me being a platoon leader was all about, right? After four years at West Point. So the Bluebird bus comes up. Everybody, all the all of us, it's almost the entire class is West Point. We all get on the bus. I'm literally dragging ass, doing the duffel bag drag. Get on the bus. I'm the last one on the bus. And I say jokingly, does anyone want to trade for Fort Knox? And our classmate, Alex Lynn, is sitting at the back of the bus. And he rose his hand, I'll trade with you. I did like a beeline to him. I'm like, are you serious? He's like, yeah, I hate this shit. He's like, I'm gonna get out as soon as I can. I'm like, okay, let's, let's work this. And so he was headed to Germany. I jumped in a matter of 24 hours, like, 500 places academically in our class by taking his slot. Uh, and fast forward, I ended up with Vince Duquet in General Dempsey's battalion and, and it's been history ever since. So I have so much to thank for, to, to our classmate, Alex Lynn for, for you know, trading his spot and, uh, and allowing me to, to go to a, to a unit, uh, you know, it wasn't a force company, it was a useful unit at the time, but uh, it had it, it obviously changed my destiny. Uh, and I think the lesson learned there is you actually don't have to study at this point. And it'll, <laughs> and it'll, and it'll all work out. Yeah. You'll, get your, you'll get your branch that you were meant to be and you'll get a great assignment. Well, mm-hmm. that, that could be the lesson learned there. It could be the lesson learned. <laughs> So Johnny, then, then you end up, so General Dempsey was a huge influence on, on your career, on your life. He's a tremendous role model. You ended up, is it true that, did he pin on every rank up to Colonel? Uh, he pinned on every rank up to two-star. Up to two-star? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Uh, other than 
Second, the only person that's been with me longer than General Dempsey is my wife, Deanie. So I am a two percenter. Your high school sweetheart. Yeah, high school sweetheart. So she was there when I was commissioned. So she put on second lieutenant. Uh, but after that, she put the every rank on, and then General Dempsey put every rank on since uh, since um because he promoted me to first lieutenant as when I was in this battalion, then captain major, uh, lieutenant colonel, colonel one star and two star. Yep, he's promoted me to every rank. And he was, he was a huge influence on me. Uh, yeah, I, and, I, and I tell the battalion commanders in the division today, you guys don't know the impact you're having or can have one way or the other, good or bad. You got second lieutenants, you have some, some junior NCOs, but it's mainly the lieutenants and to some degree the captains. They are looking at you and saying, 15, 20 years from now, do I want to be like this guy or gal? And if the answer is no, they're going to get out after five. Why, why would they stay? Uh, and if the answer is yes, then they can they become many many me's of you. Uh, and so uh, he had a tremendous impact on me. I mean, he he created this environment, this work environment where we we, we worked very hard, but we played hard. And I think ultimately, if we'd have ever had to fight, we would have fight fought hard together. It was a uh, it was a family. It was the you know we were the bandits. Vince. Vince Duque talked about some kind of you guys had like Lieutenant Olympics or something. There's some kind uh, of where you guys had to like it, it was a drunken kind of like uh, uh, games or something, right? Did, uh, yes, it was uh, things things that you couldn't get away with in 2023, but uh, uh, it was it was it, it was team building and. Uh, you know, we we all got together. It was it was similar to some of the the stuff we did at West Point mm -hmm. uh, that you know isn't part of the the process now, uh, but kind of binds us all together. And uh, and and that was part of the play hard. So we, we did play hard, but he also worked us. I mean, we worked hard, but we also didn't want to let him down. That was kind of the feeling, you know, like you just didn't want to let General Dempsey down. Uh, and, and, and so that was, and he created this environment that, uh, you know, you enjoyed coming to work. You got job satisfaction out of working hard and you knew there was playing hard at the end of the day or the end of the weekend or whatever the case may be. Uh, and, and so that's kind of what I've tried to create within my own personality. I mean, you can't be somebody who you're not. You know, I, I'm never going to be General Dempsey. Uh, and I sure can't sing like him. And- uh, You sing pretty so, good. You sing pretty so, good. Uh, but what I've tried to do is take the concept, you know, the idea that he had and shape it to my personality. And I've tried to create environments where people enjoy coming to work, uh, that feel like they have a second chance if they make a mistake. Matter of fact, I encourage prudent risk-taking and I reward people who make mistakes if they're doing it because they're trying to do the right thing and take advantage of an opportunity. And so, uh, yes, he, he, uh, he, he is, he was a, what I would describe as an inspirational leader. 
and uh, and, and so let's let's. I mean, we've been talking for a long time. We're going to wrap this up in a little bit of a while, but there's a, some really important stories we still need to talk about. Because that was your experience, your first battalion commander. Then fast forward, you know, 16 years later, 15 years later, you're a squadron commander. You're in Iraq, and it's a much different situation, right? It's game on. You are dealing with a changing enemy threat. Um, you know, there was years of advancement in how we were doctrinally um, reacting to IEDs. And suddenly there's a whole new threat on the battlefield and you are stuck right in the middle of this thing and you are the guy. So can you talk about that story, that situational leadership and, and how that has affected you to this day? Sure. So. Uh, and you summed it up very nicely. So we're talking 2008, 2009, and I'm in a uh, uh, I'm in a Sunni neighborhood with Fifth uh, Squadron, Fourth Cavalry Regiment, and combat is action, reaction, counteraction, as we all know. Uh, you do something, the enemy adapts to it. They have a react to it, and then you have to counter and and it's this constant um, action, reaction, counteraction, where you're trying to get into the, the other person's OODA loop. You're trying to get into their decision-making cycle uh, to, to achieve the initiative. And so we show up in Iraq, and we are very proficient at counter IED, because the IED had been the main killer from 2000 three to 2006, seven. But for the most part, we had defeated the IED, at least the Sunni IED. The, the Shia still had the EFT with some Iranian technology, but that wasn't the part of the town I was in. I was in a Sunni neighborhood. And we had, we had generally, through technology, had defeated uh, the IED. And, and, and so you're, you're defeating that by up, up armoring the vehicles by jamming the uh, frequencies yeah. and just kind of, you know, they, they just could, they couldn't, they couldn't strike at us with IEDs anymore because of. They were ineffective. They could hit us, but they were ineffective. We had, uh, we'd gone to the, you know, we'd gone from the Humvee to the MRAP, which is this big armored vehicle. Uh, and, and so they had really like, why are we going to continue? It's, we're having no impact. So why are we going to continue with the ID? So we show up in Western Baghdad in the in the fall of 2008, and the enemy had adapted, and they had gone to the RKG-3, which is a anti-tank hand grenade. Uh, Soviet era, so it was something that the Soviet infantrymen would have carried. That if he got in close contact with a NATO tank, he would have thrown it. And imagine it, it looks. It looks like a German World War I potato masher. It has, an, um, it has a, uh, a parachute, and then it comes down on top of the tank where the armor is the thinnest. It, and then it's a shape charge, which means it, it pierces the top of the tank and then shoots shrapnel all inside the tank and kills the crew inside the tank. Well, there's no shortage of supply of these things from the Soviet Cold War era, uh, either made by China or the 
of the Soviets, and Iraq had a bunch of them in storage. And so they had gone to this tactic. Now, it's a more dangerous because the beauty of the ID is you can do it from distance, right? Either by wire, and they got more advanced with, with you know, detonating it by phones. But uh, the point was, you didn't have to be, it wasn't close contact, it wasn't close combat. Well, that RKG-3 forces you to actually close with. And so they were, but they had, they had the advantage because everything that you would do to protect yourself against an ID was counter to protecting yourself against an RKG-3. You couldn't fight, you couldn't react to, you're just a sitting duck. Because we had like crew serve weapons on top of it. You couldn't like move a 50 cal right. to deal with some guy coming up in an alleyway at you. Right, yeah, I mean, we're talking about a, when we talk action, reaction, counteraction, you're, you're talking a minute, uh, I mean, a second to two second reaction time. You're not wheeling a, a 50 cal around in, in a second and reacting to uh, someone throwing a RKG-3 at you at 10, 15 feet away. So uh, first thing we did, uh, so, so the, the dilemma that I was in is, so we started taking casualties and I think everyone can kind of appreciate this as a leader, you feel like, especially in the army where we have this hierarchy, you're supposed to be the all-knowing as the leader. You're gonna come up with, sir, you will come up with the solution. Ma'am, you know everything that, you, you have the answer, you just need to tell us. And, uh, and, and so I was in this dilemma, I couldn't solve the problem because you really had to kind of think outside the box and, and, uh, and come up with a, a new innovative way to take on this new challenge, a new, so action, reaction, what's our counteraction? And so what I did was, uh, and it really has shaped how I've led ever since. And that is I brought a bunch of innovative people into the room into the conference room and, and we were in downtown uh, Baghdad. We were in a neighborhood in Baghdad and it was rank irrelevant. It was people who I knew after spending two years with them were innovative, experimental, um, creative, willing to take risk. Uh, and it ranged from a Sergeant E5 to a first Sergeant to a certain, one company commander, but not other company commanders. One of my majors, but not the other major. I got them all into the room. A specialist, I got them all into the room and they're all looking at me. I'm like, here's the threat. I'm the, I'm, I want you all, everything's on the table. There's no crazy idea out here. I'm gonna be back in one hour and you guys give me, how we were going to defeat the same. I literally got up, walked out. They went to work. I came back an hour later and they had some pretty crazy ideas. I said, okay, we're going to do them. We're going we're gonna to get rid of the MRAPs. We're going to go back to Humvees. We're going to get rid of the 50 cal. We're going to put shotguns in, in the hands of the, of, the gun, of the gunners in the, in, the, um, in the gunner seats of the Humvees. And a number of other changes that we made. We cut armor off. Yeah. So let's just let's just go back. Like you're yeah. you're literally taking a blowtorch to yeah. to to these vehicles, cutting out the armor, the the cutting the pieces of the armor plating off. 
taking off the crew serve weapon and giving a guy a shotgun and you're saying, okay, this is what we're doing. Right. And so, and you got a lot of shit from people. For oh, this. I got, I got, and from every direction. So, you know, and I remembered, and this was my realization, the challenge of leading change and breaking people's mental models. And I still remember a intense conversation I had with a platoon sergeant who, who basically said, so I'm not doing what you say. I'm like, well, first of all, I guess you will, but, uh, but explain to me why you think you're not going to do it. Sir, that armor plating that you want me to cut off in front of my gunner to give him a wider range of, uh, you know, um, a field of fire with a shotgun, that, that piece of armor that you're having me cut off saved my gunner's life in 2004. I said, yeah, okay, from an ID, right? Yeah, yes, yes, sir. I'm like, okay. How many IDs in the last six months have we had in, in RAF? None. Okay. How many RKG3s have we taken? Oh, so about 25. Okay. So why are we going to defend ourselves against, uh, against an IED threat when the threat is an RKG3? And I mean, the conversation, it, to me, it was common sense, but for him, he had this mental model. He'd come to trust that armor plating, but couldn't adapt to the change situation. And uh, I mean, eventually I convinced him, but it, I mean, I'm having to convince every, almost every individual that- By the way, do we, do we have shotguns in, in the, I mean, did you have yeah, to- Yeah, we have shotguns, yeah. I didn't think we had shotguns. We have shotguns, like, 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 yeah, like sawed-off shotguns. Like, for, uh, for uh, we we do we did not not probably in the nineties, but it was an add-on during uh, uh, during Iraq and Afghanistan for you know kind of blowing the locks off of a door before you kick the door in to to go in. Okay, and the idea was. So uh, the tactic, so we had watched video, because here's the other thing the enemy was doing is they were videoing this. So not only were they getting some kills, but the big thing was their propaganda. They had videos of their, you know, their quote, Mujahideen closing with and destroying US Army Humvees and, and MRAPs, like face to face. Uh, and so, Good propaganda for them, but good IPB for us, right? I mean, uh, intelligence preparation battlefield for us. We can watch their tactics and techniques and like, hey, hmm, they hit the, in a four vehicle convoy, they always hit the fourth vehicle, always. Why? Because the other three have gone and there's no reaction time, right? And so uh, we really made the number three vehicle, the killing vehicle, which is, hey, Orient yourself down an alley so that as we pass, you will pick up the enemy who's coming out of the alley who's going to attack the fourth vehicle, and you're going to engage them before they can throw that grenade. And, uh, and it's huge risk because I was catching, like, first of all, from the bottom up, I had, you know, I had platoon sergeants, I had NCOs, some officers like, sir, this is huge risk. If someone gets killed when you put all this stuff on, you know this isn't going to go well. Like, yeah, well, versus 
let's just do what we've always been doing. And if someone gets killed, sir, you won't be held accountable because you were just doing what the army's been doing for the last five years. And I'm like, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. I don't want, I, that's not how you win wars. You don't win wars by being risk averse. I said, we got to take some risk. And, and, and I'm telling you, it'll work. I went to bed every night thinking, tonight's the last, my last night in command because something bad's going to happen. And, and, and people are going to double guess me that, you know, I put soldiers at risk. Uh, thank goodness. Uh, the first time it was time to employ this new tactic and with all the new changes that we made, uh, it was it was successful. And then it unraveled the, you know, over, over the next year, uh, the whole network, the whole RKG3 network in Western Baghdad. But what I learned from that was in today's society, and maybe it's always been this way, but problems are so complex and, and wicked that the leader isn't always the one, one mind isn't going to solve them. Your best bet is to bring a group of people, the right group of people together to solve a problem collectively and, and leverage people who are innovative and creative to come up with new solutions. And then as the leader, be willing to take that prudent risk to put it in place and, and, and see it to fruition. And so that has come to shape and it all has to do with adaptability. What I watched the squadron struggle with throughout the deployment was the ability to adapt to a changing environment. And I've come to really believe in this idea of mental models, that we have mental models that are based on experience, that we've seen something done a certain way and it's been successful, especially if it's been successful. We've seen it play out and therefore you can apply it to everything even when the conditions have changed. And so as humans, we, we don't realize when conditions have changed and we keep using the same mental model, even though the conditions have changed. And to be successful, I'll say combat, but I'm sure it applies to the business world as well. You have to have the ability to sense a change in, a, in the environment and the conditions and be able to adapt to, the, to that change. And so the two things that have really come to ground my leadership philosophy, and we've just touched on them in the last half of this discussion is cohesive teams, which I, I learned from General Dempsey, and adaptive leaders that I learned as a squadron commander in Iraq dealing with this action, reaction, counteraction, and this idea of maintaining the initiative through ad, uh, adaptation. And both of those things are founded on this idea of trust, that, that to have a cohesive team has to be because everyone trusts each other. It's a kind of a family. It's almost a fraternal feeling. And then to have adaptive leaders, you have to have a culture inside your organization where people feel like I can experiment and I can take chances and I can take risk and I can be innovative. And if I fail, I'm not going to get my head cut off. I might actually be rewarded. And therefore you create this environment of 
adaptability inside of your organization, which goes back to, you know, kind of what I talked to at the very beginning. PSRT is how the Army defines readiness. I define it, yeah, you got to have the PSRT, and then you have to have a cohesive team with adaptive leaders. And when you put all that together, I think you're unbeatable on the battlefield. I feel like this is this is like a masterclass on leadership. I I I don't uh, <laughs> I don't know about that. Well, I mean, well, a couple of things too that just to add to what you're saying that I heard you say, which I think is, it, you you had to bring that team together and then you had to leave the room, right? You needed to have them not be influenced by your ideas. You needed them to create their own ideas that then you could you could then derive from that sort of ideation cycle what your strategy was going to be that was the one thing the other thing i heard you say was the importance of explaining the why like when you had that heated conversation with that platoon sergeant you had to break it down you had to explain the why we may not always have time to explain the why in the moment but it's good to get back and explain the why later on uh, i think that that's another another um master lesson so um Johnny, you are amazing. By the way, I got to say how freaking proud I am, how proud are classes of you. I mean, I mean, it's incredible what you've accomplished in your career, but not just what you've accomplished in your career, what you've accomplished, you know, for the for the army, the leaders you the leaders that you have um, created, the the um, example you set. It's unbelievable. So I'm so I'm so grateful for that. Um, well, Jamie, I appreciate that. Uh, I'll tell you though, like I said, you know, people ask me, I get asked all the time, how do you become a general officer? How, how do you do so well in the military? And, uh, and I say, well, first of all, it's, it's no different than in civilian life. And I attribute to three things. It's hard work, it's perseverance, and it's luck. And I've had a lot of luck. Uh, and and the other thing I've been blessed by is incredible teams. I've just been on some unbelievable team, like the one I'm on right now. It's it's just, like I said at the very beginning, I probably don't even need to go to work and this division will run absolutely fine uh, without me. Uh, the other thing I, I is, is this, are you about to cut me off? Are you about to give me the hook? Is in my closing comments now? Yeah, let's let's move on to the closing comments because we right, so uh, here's what I was saying. I what, what I think, what I take away, and I, I thought about this, and I had this conversation with uh, Charlie Costanza, um, maybe a month or two ago. So Charlie commands the three ID, and Charlie and I, were, I think we're the we may be the last two armor officers still on active duty. He commands three ID, and he and I are very different how we how we command and how we how we approach command um i mean it, you actually you couldn't even be in there you know he commands three id the dog-faced soldiers their unofficial motto that he brought to him is you know not fancy just tough and that's charlie you know that's that's charlie that he's always been uh you know the kind of blue collar like you know i'm not fancy kind of guy and, I, and i'm opposite right i mean i'm just you're straight up like Calvaryman, big boots, Stetson, Spurs. But when it's all said and done, when you boil it down, Charlie and I come from the same foundation, which is the class of 91. It's from West Point. And our, our, 
how we approach building a team and what we have to do to accomplish a mission, you can see the, the, the thread of, of West Point. We just approach it from two different directions, but we want the same thing and we end up at the same result, which is building cohesive teams that are ready to fight and win. And I think that I think you could spread that to all of our classmates, no matter what they're doing across the globe, that we all have this common link and this foundation that West Point gave us. And specifically, each class, I think, has its own sub foundation that is created in the four years that you are together. Uh, and I just I, I look at Charlie and I and I think like that is like he and I are a great parody of what West Point is all about. Two completely different leaders who whose foundation is the same and that we get and we get to the same objective, but we do it in, in our own with our own personality. And I just think that's uh, that's the power of West Point and it's the power of, of, of leadership. Well, I, for one, am humbled to be part of that same group of, uh, of, of our class. It's just incredible. I mean, I, I, Vince Duquet, who may not be on the line anymore, he just, he wrote, Johnny, I got to go. I want to say how proud I am. I've worked alongside you in our friendship and laughs all the way back to Germany. I love you. Hugs to your family. I mean, we are we are so blessed. We are so blessed to be part of this this great, amazing class, but this also this great experience. And you're still doing it. Like that's the cool. I I I do think like going back to you know June first, nineteen ninety one. You've been doing it all the way since back then. Unbelievable. You and Charlie and Da and Johnny Braga and all. I mean, we're so proud of you. We are so proud of you. It's like you know. I, I brag about you guys all the time. I, I brag about my classmates. It was just incredible. So thank you for, for being such amazing leaders and just amazing people. Well, thanks, Jamie. And, that, and I, I, I want to extend my thanks to you and, and then your, your co-host co tonight uh, and Holly and, and all the other co-hosts that, that you have held in the back. I think this is a really powerful way to keep all of us connected. Uh, I mean, just think if, if you weren't doing this, I mean, we're, we're all over the globe uh, and, and the fact that you leverage technology and this specific medium, uh, I think is, is really neat. I love listening to our classmates and hearing uh, the different ways that they continue to serve. And we were there when the, the soup changed the, mission statement, if you remember, from mm -hmm. you know, military service to service to the nation. Yep. And you can do that in so many different ways, whether it's within your community, within, within your state, within the national level, or in staying in the military. There's so many ways that our class continues to contribute to our nation at different echelons. And the way you bring us all together and remind us of that by showing all the different venues that people have and, and avenues that people have taken uh, to serve and, and, and represent our class, I think is that it's, you, will, uh, you will be always remembered in our class for doing this. Not, not well, and I, I appreciate what you do. 
Thank you. Well, thank you. It's it's a great, it's a labor of love and it's an honor. And we're going to continue to evolve it further. And we've got some more guests coming on. We've actually got some um, former classmates we're going to have on. We're going to have a former classmate. Yeah. Uh, talk about uh, his journey. So um, we've got a lot of got a lot of good guests lined up here for the rest of the year. Thank you. Thank you for being my guest, Johnny. You, you're amazing. I'm going to stop the live feed here. You can stick around, though. Um, thank you to all of our classmates who joined us tonight. Duty shall be done. Yep. All right, stop the live feed. Drake, you go through Johnny a couple. I beg of you, Sarge, I believe that charge when the battle lines are drawn. Let me at least leave a good hoofbeat they'll remember loud and long. Line out a good foot soldier, make I'll be sour and slow at march. And I'll be sick on a navy ship in the sea would we be parched. But I'll be a first in line if they let me ride. By God, you'll see my starch. Look back at the heat at the laurel wreath underneath that victory arch. For I want to be in the cavalry if you send me off to war. I want a good steed under me like my forefathers before. I want a good mouth when the bugle sounds and I hear the cannons roll. I want to be in the cavalry if they send me off to war. lost or won. I wield my lance as a pony stands in the black guards for their gun. A saber keen and a saddle carbine, an army Remington. With the hot lead screams and the cold, cold steel, let me be a cavalry man. Oh, I want to be in the cavalry if they send me off to war. I want a good steed under me like my forefathers before. I want a good mouth when the bugle sounds and I hear the cannons roar. I wanna be in the cavalry if they send me off to war.